Well, hopefully uh, inside your service sheet is a white uh, sermon outline which will help you as we continue uh, to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians uh, tonight. And uh, as we reach chapter 3 tonight in the first five verses which we'll be looking at uh, together, I think we really get to the heart of the matter that Paul is dealing with as he writes to the Galatian churches. Because really through tonight's passage we will see the one reality, the one single reality that every Christian needs to have before their eyes and the three questions that every Christian needs to keep asking themselves if they hope to live a successful life. So that's our aim tonight, to see the one reality that we need to keep in front of our eyes and the three questions that we need to keep asking ourselves. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we do that. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that as your word and spirit go to work on us tonight that we can be completely confident that you will achieve your purposes. And so we pray, Father, that you take away from us pride, take away from us the things that distract us from your son, take away from us guilt and all the things that distract us from your grace. Father, we pray that through your word tonight that we would see again your magnificent grace, that we would trust it completely and we would live in light of it. Amen. Well, uh, who's the biggest fool you've ever met? If uh, you think back over your life, all, all the foolish people that you've met in your time, who's number one on your list as you think back? The, the person whose stupidity, whose failure to grasp basic reality is so breathtaking, even thinking back on it, you can't believe how foolish they are. Who's the biggest fool you've ever met? I imagine as you look back, there's, there's probably a few people coming to your mind, foolish people in your past. There's a few that came to my mind as I was thinking about that question. One of them was, was an Englishman I met in uh, my final year of high school. He was on his gap year and uh, I was playing with my cricket team on, on the school's main oval and uh, the game had just started and, and his job was to sort of support the team in, in some way. So he'd rolled up in the morning. It was a, a glorious summer's day. Uh, in Sydney, it was about 40 degrees at, at 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, there he was in just a pair of shorts thinking, fantastic, you beaut, I'm going to get a great suntan today. And uh, as the day progressed, uh, he got more and more brown uh, and then red. And uh, we kept saying to him, maybe, maybe you should put on a shirt. Uh, maybe you should try some sunscreen. But he said, no, 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 this, this is the moment I've been waiting for. I've been thinking about this moment all last year, uh, going through an English winter, dreaming of this suntan. And so he refused to listen to sense and uh, the day went on, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. And by 6 o'clock he was so burnt, so red, so lobster-like that he was almost immovable uh, from where he, where he sat. As I think back, he's still the height of foolishness uh, in my mind. To be honest though, uh, the exact reverse happened a couple of weeks ago uh, with my family trying to swim uh, in an English ocean uh, well before summer. <laughs> Who's the biggest fool you've ever met? For me, it's hard to go beyond uh, my friend Scott, who I've uh, mentioned before. He is uh, a foolish man, a lovely man, a, a, a great friend, but uh, numerous occasions he has demonstrated his foolishness, like the time that we convinced him it would be a great idea to shave the letter Z on each side of his head. 
and that would make him look pretty impressive uh, to all the ladies. Uh, didn't quite work. All the time, uh, again, involving girls, that we convinced him uh, that the girl he was falling in love with would like a call at three in the morning for him to explain uh, his undying love. Foolishness. And most often when we think of foolishness, we think of this, this type of fool, the sort of person who, who just can't seem to grasp reality, can't seem to see the consequences of their actions. And yet there is another kind of fool altogether, a much bigger fool, in fact. And we read about him in our first reading tonight, Psalm 14, verse 1. It's, I think it's page 549 of the Bible, Psalm 14, verse 1. Let me introduce you to this fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Ask the Bible to describe a fool and they won't describe a man shaving a Z in the side of his head. They'll describe the man who says there is no God. And to be honest, in our world, he's not a rare creature, is he? This fool. We live in a foolish world. God looks down from heaven at our world in this psalm and he sees our self-belief And rather than seeing our strength, our self-determination, he sees, it says in Psalm 14, delusion and corruption, utter bankruptcy. He looks at our rationality, our certainty that we know what life is about, we know what its purpose is and he sees no one who understands. He looks at humanity's belief in its own inherent goodness and he sees no one who does good. To the one who says there is no God and so I can please myself, God says, you fool. And yet there is in fact a bigger fool than the one we meet in Psalm 14 verse 1. The one who says there is no God. The bigger fool, the religious fool. Paul, uh, the author of this letter that we're in the midst of at the moment, was just such a fool, deeply religious, eager to please God, devout, zealous. And again in our world, he's not a rare creature, is he? Religion shows no signs of abating in our world. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Mormons, Sikhs, you name it. Religious, devout. That was Paul, the perfect Jew. He describes himself in Philippians this way. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But God revealed to him what his religiosity really looked like. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says this is what God showed him. For all his religion, for all his keenness, it was blasphemy, ignorance and unbelief. To the religious, to the one who says there is a God and I can please him, God says, you fool. Well, what breaks the spell of unbelief? in either the godless fool or the religious fool. Well, in Paul's case, it took a dramatic act of mercy from God. As he walked along living this foolish life, this religious life, walking along the road to Damascus, he was literally knocked off his feet by God and he met the crucified and now risen Lord Jesus. Paul, a zealous Jew who knew a crucified man, a man hanging on a tree was a cursed man, a pathetic figure, that's what he thought of Jesus. The ultimate sign for a Jew that you are cursed by God. To trust Jesus would be to be a fool in Paul's mind. 
But as he met the crucified Christ on the road to Damascus, the experience was completely shattering. There in the presence of the crucified and yet now risen Lord Jesus, everything that he thought about himself, everything that he thought about Jesus was knocked to the ground in an instant. Seeing Christ crucified changed everything. You know, this is uh, Paul's big aha moment where the penny drops. He keeps talking about it again and again in the New Testament. You can read about it in Acts 9 and in 22 and 26. This is the moment his whole life changed when he saw that God was infinitely more holy than he'd ever imagined. Who was he kidding to think that his works, his, his religion was going to be good enough, that he could hold it up to God and God would be impressed? And Paul saw how infinitely more bankrupt he was than he imagined. When Paul meets Jesus, when he sees God's holiness, when he sees what God has had to do to forgive his sin, he declares in 1 Timothy 1, I am the worst of sinners. He sees God's holiness, he sees the depths of his sin and then he sees how magnificent Jesus is. That despite the extent of of God's just and righteous demands, despite the fact that he was the worst of sinners, Jesus was enough, completely enough, to satisfy God's demands for holiness, completely enough to carry the weight of the worst of sinners. Jesus was enough, more than enough. You see, when you meet Jesus, you see the one reality that changes everything. Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, he's enough. I'm forgiven. I'm rescued. That's all I need to know. That's Paul's experience. That's the Galatians' experience. And for you and I as Christians, that's our experience, isn't it? And yet, as Paul writes to the Galatian Christians who know Christ crucified, who know it changes everything for them, he writes to the biggest fools of all. Not Scott with a Z in the side of his head, not the godless human, not not even the religious devotee. It's the one of whom Galatians 3 verse 1 speaks of. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The Galatians are those who have seen clearly this Christ and him crucified and yet they've allowed these Judaizers, we're told in, all throughout Galatians, to come in and say, Christ crucified, it's wonderful, isn't it? But it's not enough. I mean, look at you. Faith, great. But you're going to need more than that. Jesus has forgiven you, that's fantastic, but how are you going to hang in there as a Christian? How are you going to go the distance? You've only just started. If you're going to go the distance, you're going to have to get motoring. You're going to have to lift your game. I mean, look at us, they said. We're secure. We've made sure of it. Look at all the evidence. We've got circumcision. We've got our rituals. We've got the law that God gave us. We know what God expects and we're trying our best to head in that direction. And you need to too. Slowly the Galatians are worn down second-guessing themselves, starting to look around at each other, measuring their performance, looking for assurance that they're doing okay, at least better than some others. Well, they know Christ has forgiven them. It was clearly shown to them. And now, well, they're just working hard to stay with him. 
Paul's response? You foolish Galatians. And for Paul, this is the depths of foolishness. The one who knows God, who knows him because he knows Christ. And not just in abstraction, he knows Christ crucified. And not just crucified, but crucified for me, out of love given for me, for my sins, for my rescue, knows all of that. And yet step by step lives as if it wasn't enough. As if Christ died for nothing, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 21. And as I read these chapters, at the end of chapter 2 and now into chapter 3, it shakes me when I think about my own Christian life. Because isn't this exactly how all too often we live the Christian life? Every step in this direction is me saying, as Paul did, God is not as holy as the Bible says. He'll be satisfied with my best efforts if I just lift my game a little bit. Every step is me saying my sin is is not that serious. You see, my sin only looks that serious as it really is when I see Christ crucified. But when instead of him I see you, I start to feel better. I start to feel like I'm doing okay. And as for you, you should feel better because you're doing better than her. We do it so often. The way we we speak to each other about our our prayer lives or even Bible reading, one of those foundational parts of the Christian life, almost speaking about it as if it was some performance that could be measured. I mean, if you've ever been part of a small group, it's the ultimate small group prayer point, isn't it? You get to the end of of the night and you're you're sharing prayer points and the, the ultimate prayer point is I'm struggling with my Bible reading and I'd really like to pray more. So pervasive, so good a prayer. Because Bible reading is great, isn't it? 1 John tells us it's where we meet face to face with God. We, we share fellowship with him in his word. How good is that? And yet for me, and I suspect for many of us, so often we're not driven by that at all. A lot of the time something else is driving me. It's guilt. Feeling like I'm underperforming as a Christian, that, that I'm not doing the job well enough, that I have to lift my game. We do it so often. Now think about the way we respond when we're struggling with a sin. For a girl who's struggling with gossip who says, I'm going to stop this. Or the guy struggling with lust who falls down yet again and says, never again, never going to fall down ever again. Such good intentions. And yet what's beneath it? What is she saying to herself? What is he saying? All too often we're saying, I'm better than this. I can do better than this. God must be so disappointed. I've got to beat this. Paul says, you fool. And here's the worst of it. Every step I take in this direction is me turning away from what should be always filling my horizon, Christ and his cross. And so the one here tonight who thinks, you know what, I'm heading in the right direction as a Christian. I'm on the up and up. Every step is you saying, I need Christ less now than I used to. I'm finding my feet. To you, Paul says, you've forgotten how much God had to do to forgive you. And to the one here tonight who thinks, you know what, I'm hopeless. I'm the joke of the Christian family. Who looks around and thinks, if the Christian life was a race, I'd be the one bringing up the rear. Every step is you saying, Jesus isn't enough. 
He can't deal with this. You've forgotten how much God was willing to do to rescue you. We do it so easily. Let me give you an example uh, from myself in the last week. We were on holidays in Cornwall last week and we were in this spectacular beach. Just an awesome place. Great sand, great surf. I was there with the family. The sun was shining. I was thinking, how good is this moment? As I was walking along, I went to send up a quick sort of praise or or thank you prayer to God for being so kind. As I started to do it, I kept thinking to myself, you know, I can't thank him yet. I've been so hopeless lately, so self-absorbed, so distant from him. Let's get all that sorted out and then then he'll be willing to listen to me. Otherwise, my thanks will seem cheap. You fool. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And so often in the Christian life, it feels like to us like starting a new job. You know, when you're starting a new job and you want to do it well and you're constantly worrying about whether you're doing it right. Is this enough? Is this okay? Tell me I'm doing okay. I think most of us can get stuck there all too often. We get crippled by guilt of how we imagine we should be by now as a Christian, of the sort of progress we should have made, crippled by our desire not to underperform, wanting to hear the words, good job. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to help each other with this. If we are going to be a grace-filled community, then we need to re-fix our eyes on Christ crucified. That's the one reality we need to have in front of us. We need to see it and see the massive difference he makes to the way I experience life. And if you want to see the difference he actually makes, have a look at how Paul articulates it for us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I reckon this is the perfect summary of the Christian life. Paul says, do you know what it feels like to be a Christian? This is what it feels like. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's the big reality we need to have in front of us. I have been crucified with Christ. The old me, the self-determined me, the the prideful me, the, the one who is going it alone, he's dead. He died when I came to the cross in faith. And now Christ has taken over. Christ lives in me. It's a great image, isn't it? What does it actually mean? That, that to be a Christian is to be one who Christ lives in. Well, really, for the next couple of chapters, Paul is going to plumb the depths of this reality for us. But as he starts to do it in chapter 3 for us here, he does it in the most remarkable way and, and I think the most helpful way for those of us who, who struggle not to lose sight of grace, who, who struggle to keep Christ crucified in front of our eyes and to know that's enough. What he does for us in verses 2 to 5 is he draws on our own experience as Christians to show us Christ does indeed live in you and that's enough. Only instead of speaking about Christ living in us, in these verses he speaks of the Spirit. For God's promise to us as Christians is that as we come to him in faith, he comes to reside in us. His Spirit comes into us the spirit of his son, the spirit of Christ. And so what Paul does for us so brilliantly, I think, in these few verses is he says, what does it feel like 
to be someone who the Spirit dwells in? What does it feel like to live as a Christian? What's the experience like? And he does this so that we can be sure we're a Christian, so that we can be sure we're doing okay as a Christian and we can be sure we're going to make it as a Christian. He does it by asking us three questions all about our experience as Christians, three questions we need to keep asking ourselves. Have a look at the first one in in verse 2. He starts with our origins, with, with how we began as Christians. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? He wants to know how we began. He wants you to think back to when you became a Christian. How did you come to life as a Christian? Christian life, how did that begin for you? Think back to your your pre-Christian days. What happened to you to move from that to being a Christian? Was it that you reached some sort of higher level of morality that you became a better person and so you graduated into the Christian life. Was that what happened? No, Paul says. You did nothing. Diddly squat. God brought you to life as a Christian. That's what happened. The Spirit of Christ came and it took up residence in you and he breathed on you, your dead, dull heart, and he said, live. Paul takes us back to the start and he says, this is what happened when you became a Christian. The gospel was preached to you. The one that says Jesus is Lord, that he died for your sins, that he rose, that those who trust him have forgiveness and hope, you heard that message. And as you heard that gospel, faith happened. You didn't plan it. You didn't cause it. Faith came on you. And with faith came the very spirit of God into you. The spirit that enabled you to say what you did say when you became a Christian, to call God Father. The spirit that is the only one able to make us say, as Corinthians 12 tells us, that Jesus is Lord. That's the spirit's work, not yours. You did no works. God worked on you. His spirit, his word, the the inseparable combo produced faith. You died. The spirit of Christ brought you to life, a life of faith. That's his first question. How did you begin? How did you come to life as a Christian? Then in verse 3, I think he asks the most important question for us here tonight, those of us who are Christians. What keeps you alive? Who keeps you alive as a Christian? This is what he says, verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And so he's taken us to the beginning, now he takes us to the end. How are you going to get there? Your goal as a Christian, to reach God's throne and to have him say to you, welcome home, Andrew, good and faithful servant. How are you going to get there? I mean, that's my goal. Is it it yours? I hope it is as a Christian. I want to stay a Christian. And along the way, I I don't want to just limp over the line. I, I want to grow as a Christian. How good would that be? Well, Paul's response is to say it's a great goal to go the distance, to not limp over the line, to strengthen as you go. But he says here in verse 3, how do you think you're going to pull that off? Andrew, you you might be alive for 20, 40, 60 more years. How are you going to hang in there that long? Are you going to do it by your own effort? Or are you going to do it by the Spirit? Your own effort, or more literally, Paul says here, flesh, the the old me, the 
the one that died on the cross? Am I going to bring him back to life and and try to do it on my own, independent, self-determined? Is that how you're going to hang in there as a Christian? It's the question we need to hear, don't we? We know the answer. But boy, so often we don't live like it. Paul says, you know how you came to life as a Christian. Are you now planning to do the rest under your own steam? It's the question for us here who who are established Christians. Paul says, you began with the Spirit. Don't lose your nerve. Don't go back to your own efforts. It's a fool's move. I was trying to think of how he's describing the Christian life here and the, the image that came to my mind is that the Christian life is like being on life support. The Spirit is that life support. Anything that is life in me is the Spirit's work. Detach myself from that would be to be a fool. But it's the lie we tell ourselves. God gets our heart started as a Christian and then we take it from there. Works is how we grow as a Christian. We must be more loving, well, try harder. More self-controlled, try harder. Such an approach is going to look very moral. It's going to look impressive in a crowd like this but Paul says it's lifeless and it nullifies God's grace. It says his spirit is not needed and it says Christ died for nothing. Then Paul comes to his third question which I think really drives home the second one, makes it practical for us. You see it there, verse 4? Have you experienced so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Now you see there in uh, verse 4 the NIV says suffered so much and If you're a small group leader, I've given you notes that says that's what it is, but I've now changed my mind, uh, having looked at it a bit harder. Paul is talking about our experience here and so he's asking, having shown us the beginning of the Christian life, having shown us our goal, he says, now look at all the things in between. You might have become a Christian 20 years ago. Think about all the steps along the way. Have you experienced all those things for nothing? To prove that it is only by faith and not works, that it is only by the spirit and not the flesh that we remain as Christians, Paul says to us, think back right now. Think back on all the experiences you've had as a Christian, whether that be 60 years of Christian life or 60 days, and ask yourself this, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you work hard? or because you believe what you heard? The things you've experienced along the way, did did they happen because of your efforts or was it the Spirit by faith working in you? He points us to miracles in our lives. In the Galatians case, they'd seen God do amazing things when they first became Christians and we too, if we think back on our Christian lives, have seen such things whether it be the greatest miracle of all when he kick-started our life, gave us repentance and faith, whether it be those times when we pray for a friend or, or, or a family member that they come to faith and we see it happen. Paul says, how did that happen? Or whether it be praying with fellow Christians and seeing spectacular answers to prayers along the way, amazing changes to circumstances. I remember praying with a couple in my previous church for five years Five years of childlessness and God granted them two children. I remember praying at the same church for, for a block of land that was across the road that the, the owner had no intention of selling but we were 
keen to get to continue ministry to expand what we were doing. One week later, sold and someone bought for us. Paul says, look back over all the amazing things that God has done in your midst and count them, if indeed you can, and ask yourself, did you do that? Only a fool would say yes. Or did God do it by his spirit? Did he do all the work required? Think about your miraculous growth as a Christian. I mean, for Paul, he could see it. He was the worst of sinners and then he could say, I consider everything a loss compared to Christ. How did that happen? I think about a a youth group Bible study I led for six years and I remember in the first couple of years there were some guys in there that were rat bags. Never listening, always throwing my sheets out halfway through the study, totally, totally uh, irresponsible, no interest whatsoever in the gospel. And yet some of them are the ones who are powering most as Christians now. How did that happen? Well, think about for yourselves breakthroughs in your Christian life, overcoming some persistent sin or, or finally getting into a healthy pattern of devotional life or finally digging up the courage to forgive someone even when they're not ready to repent. How did that happen? Did you do it? Or was that the work of one far more powerful than you? Think of the fruit of a Christian. Things like love and joy, peace, patience and so on. Liz and I were having dinner last night with an amazing couple full of the sort of fruit that Galatians 5 speaks of, love, joy, peace, patience. Passionate Christians, evangelists, stretched thin for Jesus. And yet you talk to them of their pre-Christian life and even their early Christian days and you wonder, there's not even a hint of what's to come. Did that happen because of human effort or was it the work of God's spirit? And finally, think about your experience of this community you're a part of right now, a miraculous community. Think on what you've experienced in the midst of this people. People with a genuine impulse to love each other. Where did that come from? I see it all the time. People displaying amazing kindness to each other. Just this week somebody dropped in a a meal for us. Liz is about four weeks away from, uh, uh, from giving birth to our third child and we're doing okay but somebody just decided that would be a kind thing to do. Why? How does that happen? Or Friday Club, I was there on Friday and you see students helping people with a chairlift. They, don't, they hardly know them at all and yet they're doing it. How does that happen? I remember a few weeks ago bumping into a guy in uh, the village, Forward Village down there, who was busy helping a guy fix up his house so the family could get back in. In the middle of a working week, totally exhausted. How does that happen? I've seen people cry and comfort people they hardly know. I've seen extremely shy people welcome the newcomer and the stranger. How does that happen? I've seen a wife, not once, not twice, but three separate times, betrayed by her husband and turn each time through the deepest possible pain and love him and even grow to feel that love again. How does that happen? This is a miraculous community. Paul says, tell me, Have you experienced so much for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you work hard or because of faith? 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we get to the middle of this letter, I want you to see God's grace in full flight. All because we come to Christ crucified in faith, we die. His spirit takes over and the effects, the ongoing, ever-growing effects, well, they're breathtaking. The fool sees Christ crucified and he says in his heart, not enough. There's no God that gracious. The wise sees Christ crucified, bows the knee, empties their hand and by faith lets the spirit go to work. Brothers and sisters, in Christ crucified, let us be wise before our God and let us be wise before each other. Amen. Now what I want us to do just for a few moments before we sing our final song is the grace of God is something we know full well but it's easy to let it slip as we've seen in this passage tonight. So what I want you to do for the next uh, little while is we're going to... uh, Technology allowing, which is a a big if. Uh, We're going to listen to a song and potentially we're going to see uh, a clip uh, from The Passion of the Christ. At least a song will be there. And what I want you to do over this next little while while we're watching this and while we're listening to this song, which is all about the sort of thing we've seen in Galatians 3, is to have this verse bouncing around your head. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. I want you to think about that and I want you to think back on your Christian life.